Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. The darkness has found you. Welcome to Season 5, Episode 15. I'm your host, Jason Hill. And I assure you, the pleasure is all mine. And wolf, do I like pleasure. Oh yeah. Frequently and vigorously. Many, many, many friendly introductions. And I do tend to come out on top of those. Or bottom. I guess it really depends what kind of mood I'm in. Because in this degenerate age, we all so often forget that uh, the pleasantries do count for something. Propriety always has its place. Happy New Year, Hill homeboys and girls, and any non-binary individuals who may be listening. That's how old I am, folks. I can remember when homeboy was still pretty edgy. Yep, really knocking the jokes out of the park tonight, so I guess it's a good thing that my New Year's resolution was to be less long-winded. So that's it for the intro, I guess. Unless you want me to continue. Do you? Because it would most certainly be my pleasure. Tonight's story comes from the great Brian Hodge an author of no insignificant renown nor deniable talent. And I'm still talking. So, let's get busy. If it's your pleasure. Hmm. 
pleasure. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Shall we? You're listening to the standard edition of this program, and I assure you, it's pretty milk toast by comparison. If you'd like to show your support and pleasure yourself with ad-free versions of this and all our other episodes, as well as hundreds of tales from our audio archives dating back to 2012, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Pleasure in the upper menu to sign up today. Actually, the link you'll want to click is Patrons, but that's little more than a semantic quibble around here. They're basically the same thing. Regardless, click Patrons to get instant access from our friends at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Our very, very good friends. Thank you for your support. Tonight's episode is part one of a two-part story. For part two, and the thrilling conclusion, be sure to check in again next week. And now, without further ado, from author Brian Hodge, I give you On These Blackened Shores of Time. I saw it happen. Watched the street open up and swallow my son whole. I understand human stress response, how it works. When violent chaos hits you without warning, the mind has to catch up. It lags behind to make sense of things. Four seconds on average. Your world can end in those four seconds. When I replay the moment in my head, in those four seconds, I do superhuman deeds. I spring into action a nanosecond before the pavement snorts to buckle. I cross the cul-de-sac at the end of our street in a blur. I catch Drew's car by the bumper, so it teeters on the brink long enough for him to scramble out and jump to safety before I let go. Then hold him tight as we watch the taillights plummet down the sinkhole. In those four seconds, I'm not a former special agent with the Bureau. I never went into the private sector for the money, giving up corporate seminars on better business through reading body language. None of that. In those four seconds, I'm the superhero my boy grew up believing me to be. Instead, while out front threading a new length of hose onto the soaker line at the flower beds, I looked up at the sound of his Mazda and watched it happen without moving a muscle. When Drew got within thirty feet of the cul-de-sac, the street gave way as his car's front end rolled over the weak spot. The Mazda tumbled into this freshly opened wound in the asphalt, nose first, tail end flipping into the air, and then out of sight with the sound of grinding. Then I ran, four seconds of eternity later. By the time I got there, Drew was already gone, and all I could do was stand at the lip of the chasm and gape into the blackness that took over a few dozen feet down. I couldn't even see the car. 
It was as if the earth had yawned and opened gullet years in the making. Come to find out it was. This was a calamity that had been built in stages. Over time. Two years ago, for the newest piece of it. Nearly a century for another. Beyond that, we're into the millions. The neighbors were kind, as neighbors are when one of their own succumbs to fate. And for a time, there was hope. We clung to it, because we all knew the way these incidents were supposed to turn out in neighborhoods like this. The toddler gets pulled out of the forgotten well. The puppy is rescued from the storm drain. Watch enough TV news and you'll be trained to expect it. They'll get him out. That's how this day is going to end. You wait and see. Our next-door neighbor, Dale, told me. I'd always seen something of the high school and college athlete going sedentary in him. Thick in the middle now, and florid-faced. A man built for sweating. A Saturday's worth of ginger stubble covered his cheeks the same as it covered half his skull. The airbag should have gone off. That would have cushioned him on the way down. Dale stared at the flurry of activity around the hole and nodded, as if he could will it so. They'll get that winch down there. They'll knock out the back window and pull him out that way. You wait and see. I wanted to tell Drew this myself, but whenever I tried his cell phone, it went straight to voicemail, as if he weren't in range, which could have been a consequence of the earth itself, insulating and interfering. But then, it didn't seem as if this sinkhole should be any worse than the average sub-basement or parking garage. My hope was that he would already be standing on our lawn by the time Ginny got home from teaching her Saturday morning class down in Scranton. It wasn't to be. The first I saw of her, wiry and short-haired, she came sprinting across the lawns from where she'd had to park up the street because the intuitive part of her already knew. I caught her and we dropped to the spring grass and I held her until I was sure she wasn't going to dive down the hole after him. Plan B then. Drew would be up and out by the time his sister got here. Katie was across the state in Pittsburgh, a sophomore at Carnegie Mellon, and would be home by evening. It's Drew isn't it? Was how she answered her phone. They'd always been like that with each other. Katie more so than her brother, but it still went both ways. It's a twins thing. They would tease. You wouldn't understand. Over the morning, our ill-fated street filled up with uniforms and barricades and flashing lights, vehicles with various department logos stenciled on the doors. All we cared about was the wrecker big enough to handle a semi-truck, and the spooled cable could fed into the hole, and the man in coveralls riding a giant hook down, like a child standing on a swing. From a hundred feet away, we watched them work, another man operating the winch and the woman on a walkie-talkie, her free hand pressed to her other ear. 
I didn't know how much cable was on that spool, but eventually they came to the end of it. There was no place left to go but in reverse. And after a few moments, in which it felt as if I'd lost the last moorings that kept me upright, the spool began to rewind. We didn't need anyone to come over and update us. All the apprising Ginny and I needed was in their body language. They hadn't even found the car yet. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. There may have been dozens of places in Pennsylvania coal country where this could have happened, but it had happened here. Our neighborhood, which came as a bitter surprise to one and all, had been built over the Tecumseh Mine Number 24. What had given way beneath Drew was the opening of the main shaft. We learned this in our living room from a geologist with the state's Bureau of Abandoned Mine Reclamation. Her name was DeSalvo, and by now, it was Sunday morning. With her graying hair gathered loosely at the back of her head, she looked as if she hadn't slept since she'd awakened the day before. Katie was home now, and none of us looked any better. We sat on the sofa, the Whitesides, family of three now, and to Salvo across from us, as if she were the firing squad, and we were the targets. The mine had been closed in 1927 when the location was more remote than it was now, decades before the town of Carbon Glen had grown out to absorb it. Even then, ample regulations governed how a mining company was supposed to close a site. But what are regulations for, if not to be circumvented? Tecumseh Mining had closed number 24 fast and on the cheap. They'd either made it look right enough to pass inspection, or bribe somebody to avow that it had. They demolished the head frame built over the shaft, along with the hoist house and additional shacks. All this would have required was dynamite. Then... They tossed these broken timbers and the rest of the rubble down the hole until it caught in the shaft, like fish bones in a throat. A few tarps, too, 
to catch the soil and rock they finished it off with. Pack it. Level it. Job well done. What should have been a proper seal instead amounted to a crumbling cork in a bottle. What worked it loose after all this time, DeSalvo said, was the flooding you folks had here a couple of years ago. Most people think of floods as happening only around rivers, lakes, and oceans. But those of us who live with mountains can know something about them too. What you sometimes get with peaks and valleys is a network of funnels capable of taking a heavy rain from across a wide region and sluicing it into a narrow area. On rare occasions, under freakish circumstances, enough rain might fall in a short enough time to overwhelm its normal channels. Two autumns ago, it started raining one September morning and didn't stop for four days. Rather than blowing through toward the Atlantic coast, the storm stayed put and slowly circled overhead. It acted, meteorologists said, like a tropical storm. Our neighborhood was lucky, on high ground. The worst we saw was soggy lawns and battered gardens and a few poorly sealed basements turned into waiting pools. We couldn't have known that rather than washing over us, millions of gallons of water were thundering through a system of tunnels far underground. The region is honeycombed with mine shafts, known and forgotten, and it's likely that some ended up newly connected, even though they were never meant to be. Tecumseh number 24 among them. Although it had taken only a few days to dismantle what it held intact since 1927, the blockage hadn't washed away all at once. More likely, it had gradually subsided in the 19 months since, until all that was left was a scab of pavement that could no longer bear the weight of a car. Then, it was just down to chance. Who's going to be the unlucky one? How deep is it? I asked. If you haven't even found Drew's car. DeSalvo stiffened at this. They had found it. Or thought they had. Six hundred feet for the main shaft. We have the map that was registered in the twenties, but it doesn't appear to be complete. DeSalvo could tell we expected more, even if it was bad. There is the main shaft. That's vertical. According to the map, they went four levels down. Those are horizontal. They follow the coal seams, so they split off into what are called galleries. But 80 feet down, there's what's called a slope shaft branching off the vertical at a 40-degree incline. That's not on the map. I don't know if they dug it at the same time or if it was an earlier shaft they ran into or what. If it's an earlier shaft, there's no longer any sign of a matching opening on the opposite side of the vertical. So, I don't know what to make of it. I just know you dig one or the other, vertical or slope. You don't do both. And the car's in the slope shaft. That's what you're getting at. It's the only possibility. If the car had dropped straight down the main shaft, it should be at the bottom in the sump. But it's not. Perched on the edge of the couch the whole time, Katie had had enough. I'm sorry, but how? How does a falling car change directions like that? 
The only thing anyone can figure is it got diverted by debris on the way down. Some of those pieces from the head frame are bigger than railroad ties. The head frame is the framework that supports the elevator cage for the miners and the coal cars going up and down, so these supports had to be heavy duty. If one or two were angled across the main shaft, in the right place, they could have acted as a ramp. They're not there now, but they could have been dislodged on impact after the car went into the slope shaft. You're telling us this like it's still a theory, Jenny said, her face sharp, her eyes narrow. Most days she looked more like Katie's older sister than her mother. Not today. That means you still haven't actually seen the car. And here it came. There's been a partial tunnel collapse at the opening to the slope shaft. At least twenty feet in. It's fresh, they say. I could still think in a wobbly, groping way, but I could no longer feel... It wasn't really me. Somebody else was doing the thinking and I was the numb one watching. Conceivably, Drew's car could have rolled all the way to the bottom, a distance no one even knew. This really was the worst case scenario. I'm sorry, DeSalvo said. This was when my hopes began to get dragged down the shaft too and the idea of seeing Drew again began to slither from my grasp. Nobody was giving up. I knew that. But now, this may have been a recovery operation for a body. Like any challenging rescue operation, it would take time. Time Drew didn't have. Because I knew this much too. If he could have left the car, he would have. He would have crawled back up the incline and clawed through as much muck as possible and yelled his lungs out until somebody yelled back. This was the Drew we knew and loved. That's all I can really tell you right now, DeSalvo said, clearly wanting to leave but hesitant, as if it would be rude unless she had our permission One more thing, I said. Do you know why they were in such a hurry to seal off the mine? Nearly a century ago, men had cut corners, and it had led to this day. I didn't want to always wonder why. I wanted my hatred of them to be fully informed. I mean, was it greed? Were they just lazy? Some other reason? DeSalvo sat with the question a while. They did it a few months after the mining riots of 1927. Do you know about those? I didn't, but if you go back far enough, you'll often find trouble around a mine. Then why don't you let it keep for another day? You all have enough weighing on you now, and I'm not the best one for the details anyway. She gave her phone a few pecks, then jotted something on the back of a business card. This is who you should talk to, Wesley McNabb. He's a mine historian. He'll tell you whatever you want to know. I walked her to the door, recalling the look in her eyes from moments earlier, and how her jaw had tightened. She hadn't wanted to get into it in front of a mother and twin sister who were already bearing more than they could handle. But now that we had discretion going for us, it's that bad. 
somebody mentioned you used to be with the FBI. If you're like everyone else I've met with that kind of background, you've seen enough to have... Oh, a diminished assessment of humanity in general, let's call it? Or am I wrong? I shook my head, no. You're not wrong. She made that expression where the lips curled inward and the mouth turns grim. Tecumseh 24 should finish it off entirely. We stayed hidden and watched them work from our windows. The news vans had converged from the beginning because their crews knew better than anyone how this was supposed to end. I grew increasingly annoyed by the crowd of onlookers treating this like their day off entertainment. They gathered on lawns until the property owners shooed them away, then drifted to others. Most seemed the type who hoped for the worst, to make the trip worthwhile. Our neighbor Dale got into a shoving match with two of them, a scuffle with another. The one they really had to fear was Ginny. They just didn't know it. She taught women self-defense from here to Allentown, gave all-day seminars as far south as Philadelphia. She could have laid out any of them. She would seethe at them through the windows, then turn away. She was disciplined. The sinkhole was all that mattered. The people responsible for this, she said. I want to dig up their graves and throw their bones down that hole. The rescuers finished clearing the slope shaft's blockage Monday morning and worked their way to the car, which had traveled more than a quarter mile down the incline. As quickly as our hearts had soared at that news, they plummeted again upon learning that Drew wasn't in it or anywhere near it. They plumbed the sump at the bottom of the vertical in case he'd been thrown clear of the car, but I knew they wouldn't find him there. He had always been good about wearing a seatbelt. No, he'd gone into the slope. Maybe he wasn't thinking straight, Katie said. If he hit his head, maybe he was going on instinct. If you get into trouble, work your way downhill. Those would be the instincts of a skier, dazed and in the dark. Drew had been on skis since he was six. Now, he was a strapping, shaggy-headed kid who taught other six-year-olds how to snowplow and slalom. When the twins graduated high school, Katie knew what she wanted to study and where. But Drew wasn't sure about college and couldn't say when he would be. Over a lifetime... What was a year or two to know himself better? He loved skiing, though, and sharing his enthusiasm for it, and was ridiculously patient with kids, so it was the slopes of the Poconos for him. The season had stretched into the first week of April, and he'd been home a week, where we always thought he was safer. Work your way downhill, because downhill is where help is. The problem with that in this rogue slope shaft was that at a distance equivalent to two city blocks past the point where the car had stopped, the slope plunged into water, probably a remnant of the flooding 19 months earlier. So now our hopes began to drown as well. 
They brought in the world's gutsiest diver, experienced with exploring sunken caves who deemed the conditions the worst he had ever seen. His lights couldn't do much in such black, sludgy water. No map, pitch dark, visibility of inches, the possibility of another structural collapse. Nobody had to tell me that this was the most dangerous thing he had ever done. And done for us. For our peace of mind. When he packed it in after a few hours without recovering a body, I had nothing left in my heart to argue with. By the end of the week, there was no closure anyone could provide. There was just a big, inconvenient hole in the street that needed filling in. They started with truckfuls of rock and earth, then pumped in water after mixer of concrete. You can't let them do this, Katie kept telling me, frantic to the point of tears. Drew is not dead. I know if he was dead. There can't be any worse feeling of failure than to reveal to your children how fallible you really are. No superhero to my son, and now to my daughter. Ineffectual before bureaucracy. And trying to use logic to get her to accept the unthinkable. I wasn't giving Drew up for dead. Just admitting he would have been down there waiting for rescue if he could have. You're wrong. You're so wrong. Katie told me. Would it be easier for you to accept I know this if we were identical? If I was his brother or he was my sister and we looked exactly alike? She shook her head, giving up on me if not Drew. It's still a twins thing. You still don't understand. You take your consolation where you can, and for me, the only source came from watching the spectators wander away without a payoff. No body for you. You goddamn league of ghouls. Adjustment went slowly. For weeks, Jenny drifted more in silence than not, barely within my reach. She would curl onto Drew's bed for hours. She would open his closet to bury her face in his clothes her grief on an animal level, taking in his scent, as if it might help her track him down. I began to fear I would never get her back all the way. She came most alive when Katie called, in Pittsburgh again, and trying to finish a semester that had gotten away from her. I could tell from our end that Katie spoke to her about Drew as though he were still alive. Did it help? I didn't know. I had no idea what was healthy anymore. You should move, people told us. I knew what they were thinking. Every trip along the street, Ginny and I would be rolling over our son's grave. How are you supposed to do that and get past it? As for the neighbors, maybe selfishness was involved too. If we stayed, we would be a reminder they were doing the same. Jenny and I talked about it, if only to get it out in the open and confirm that we couldn't bear to do it. It would be like trying to erase him, to outrun his memory. That's not Drew down there, we decided. He's gone, 
Whatever part of him that stayed behind, it is in the house. This house. It's in the yard. This yard. That maple tree out front. They planted the sapling when he was five, and I remember the day. How he thought he was helping. We can't take that with us. Out back, there was his first ski slope when he was six, and he'd pack every fresh snowfall into a ramp for three seconds of joy at a time. The bedroom. That's his color. We let him paint it himself when he was 14 and remember how frustrated we got when he had to paint it five times in eight months to find the perfect mix of blue and white. That's all him. We can't turn it over to strangers. Not now. Not now. So, we stayed. And no one was more adamant about it than Katie. How was Drew supposed to find us again? If we didn't stay put. Our cool spring gave way to a summer whose wet heat fell on us like a boiled blanket. We were weeks into it when I decided the time to know had come. The anger still burned, and always would. I hated men who'd left this world decades ago, whose company had been defunct since before the Second World War. I needed to know who and why. I slid the card the state geologist had left me out from beneath its refrigerator magnet and called the number on the back. Her mine historian, Wesley McNabb, had been expecting it. He agreed to meet me at his home in Wilkes Bar, a tidy two-story tucked back from the street behind some very old trees. I'm sorry for your loss, he said in the doorway. That godforsaken mine still causing misery to this day. McNabb canted to one side when he walked, clumping along on a left leg that was clearly a prosthesis. He had the unruly beard, more salt than pepper, of a man who needed reminding to trim it, and the dull, weathered cheeks of someone who'd spent a lot of time in bad elements. He led me to a big bedroom-turned-office. The tidiness ended at its door. This had been a man cave since long before anyone had thought to coin the term. Stuffed with cabinets and bookshelves and an ancient roll-top desk with enough cubbyholes to serve a rural post office. Archaic pickaxes hung mounted on the walls, along with square lanterns made of battered tin. Shelves held flat-brimmed helmets with early electric lamps and even older caps made for carbide lamps. A room like this took decades to accumulate. And it wasn't made for company. The chair I took had come from a kitchen. They first sunk her in 1919, the spring after the Great War. McNabb began, I'll tell you what's in the public record and agreed upon, more or less. Then, if you want, we can get into the rest. He gave names of owners and foremen and labor leaders. None of them meant anything, just characters in a story that started normally, most inclined toward peace after years of machine guns and mustard gas in Europe. But eventually, 
Everyone's true nature reverts to form. The riots of 1927 had begun with labor strikes. Better pay, conditions, safeguards, the usual. You couldn't fault them for it. Digging coal had always been one of the worst jobs in the world, and maybe the slowest to improve. Negotiations didn't last a week before the mine bosses cut them off and brought up a trainload of scabs from Philadelphia. McNabb ventured that the bosses never intended to settle in the first place, but were merely giving the appearance of it while they rounded up replacement workers. And to a striking miner, McNabb said, there is not a lower form of life on earth than a scab. A man willing to take his job and do it cheaper and probably not as good. Hence the welcoming committee at the train station for the new arrivals. Those who preferred a longer reach showed up with axe handles and ball bats, leather saps and knuckle dusters for those who liked to get in close and dirty. The bosses weren't stupid and knew what to expect. They had hired security accordingly, railroad bulls with clubs and saps of their own, and shotguns, if needed. The heaviest clashes went on for ten days. Six men went to the cemetery, dozens to the hospital, and Tecumseh number 24 became an armed camp. But against a fixed number of local miners and with a war chest for imported muscle, the company was always destined to win. After that, the violence dwindled to isolated brawls, mostly when scabs got caught outside the perimeter, their need to go whoring outweighing their sense of safety. Seven weeks into the strike, the locals' resolve began to crack. Nothing gained, too much lost, and ready to ask for their jobs back. And that was when a cave-in on level four went chain reaction, causing a secondary collapse on level three. That's where they all were, those bottom two levels, McNabb said. The mine had been going for eight years. Level one and two were played out, and level three was getting there, but there was still some working it. Most of them were down on four. Three men. Three. That's all that got out. They just brought a carload to the shaft. Everybody else killed or trapped. It was assumed there were more survivors than casualties. Cave-ins usually meant tunnel blockages rather than a collapse of the entire roof. Most of the men would simply have been on the wrong side of tons of rock and earth and timber and ore. With a limited supply of food, potable water, and possibly air. Under any other circumstances, McNabb went on, you'd have the entire town full of men working to clear the blockage as soon as they could get down the shaft. Not this time. The men down there were scabs, you remember? No lower form of life on earth. Jesus, I whispered. You mean they just left them right where they were because the scabs got what was coming to them. I understand the contempt, but bottom line, this is a situation every man who goes down a mine fears. He needs to know that if it happens to him, the ones up top have got his back. 
that's the bargain. So how a man sits in a church pew doing double duty as a meeting hall, looking Jesus in the face and votes to do nothing? I don't know. But they did it. Unanimous. You brought them in. You dig them out. That's a direct quote from the strike leader to the company. Did they? Tecumseh? No. They weren't any more eager to do it than the strikers. They just had different reasons. They claimed they had evidence there were no survivors. And if there were, they wouldn't survive as long as it would take to get them out. They said all the right things. We regret the loss of life. Don't want to endanger any more. Blah, blah, blah. It's more likely they didn't want to spend the money. And the scabs? They weren't union. So United Mine Workers didn't touch it. So that, more than anything, McNabb said with an air of wrap-up, explains the haste in closing the mine. The half-assed job they did blocking the shaft. A thing like that becomes a shame over an entire community. It wasn't their tragedy, so there was nothing to memorialize. They didn't want to keep anybody's memory alive. The sooner they covered it over, the sooner they could get to pretending it never happened. I wondered how collective the decision really was. If it had been genuinely unanimous or a mandate issued by a few everyone else encouraged to go along with it if they do what was good for them. Even then, it was a decision with a point of no return. You couldn't change your mind two weeks later, asking, what have we done, and make it right. It took a lot to appall me, but this managed it. Our neighborhood was built over the bones of men who'd boarded a train to take whatever job they could get and died clawing at the dirt. Angie's list is now Angie and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. In retrospect, I wasn't sure what I expected from the meeting. It only validated a hatred I was going to feel anyway for men whose evil came not from some grand design but cost-benefit analysis and spite. It didn't bring Drew back. It didn't dissipate the pall of mourning that settled over our home like a cloud that might never leave. Most of all, it was never going to dissuade Katie of her notion the Drew 
was not dead. The fixation she persisted in nurturing as the months went by. To her, everyone had conspired out of a growing sense of inconvenience to bury her brother alive. It put me in the worst position imaginable, hoping Drew had died within the first hour of the accident, that he'd staggered dazed from his car and tumbled to a swift and merciful end in the cold black water at the bottom of the shaft. Better this than lingering to dehydrate and starve. Only Katie didn't see it happening that way either. He's alive, she said in late April. I'd know if he wasn't. As Ginny and I felt like the enemy, we reminded her that denial was a normal phase of loss and would pass. He is alive, she said in May. As Ginny and I wondered if we shouldn't get her to a grief counselor. He's alive, she said in June and in July. The question was, was Katie Katie anymore? This was her 19th summer and it bore no resemblance to the previous 18. It was as if she no longer had friends, nor anyone she wanted to date. She had secured no job or summer internship. Not even with me. Last year, I'd hired her as my assistant while on the road from seminar to corporate seminar. Not this year, but then again, I had cut my schedule to the bone. Katie had her bedroom, and that was all she wanted. Its window overlooked our street, but she now rejected the view and covered the glass with black construction paper. When we asked if she didn't want to paper over it with a poster, something with a view of a beach or ski slope, she pointed at the solid black and said, Why? That's what Drew sees now. As Ginny held her through some very long nights, I mostly wondered how to bring her back. She'd always been the most forward-looking person I'd ever known. Her course of study at Carnegie Mellon was called Transition Design. Katie wanted to steer cities and systems and products towards sustainability, rather than using everything up and throwing it away as fast as possible. Now, her sketchbooks gathered dust. We'd all gone down that hole and, one way or another, had to find our way out. Wesley McNabb probably understood this as well as anyone. As for the rest of what he'd had to say, parts that came down to supposition and rumor, I wasn't sure what I believed, and what I didn't. Or rather, what I wasn't prepared to believe. Jenny, however, had taken a lot more on board than I realized that July evening I came back from Wilkes Bar with the ugly history behind Tecumseh number 24. She held it inside herself and gave it time to grow. I perceived none of this until the August morning I discovered her side of the bed empty and assumed she'd spent another night with Katie. But I was wrong. Sometimes it felt like I'd been trained to catch every minuscule detail of everything except what was going on under my own roof. I found her at the kitchen table behind her coffee. 
She was dressed in charcoal-colored technical pants and a tank top and sports bra combo that showed off her cable-tight shoulders and arms. Her ass-kicking clothes, I called them. This was the uniform she wore whenever she taught women how to find their strength. How to dig in and fight. How to kill, if that's what it took. Only she wasn't in teaching mode. She was beyond that. In doing mode. And she looked like a mother. Worried and committed and sleepless and fierce. What have you done? I asked. The uncertainty surrounding Tecumseh number 24 began with the cause of the calamity. Nobody could definitively say what it was. Even in 1927, McNabb had told me, mining was a lot safer than it was 20 years before. That's mainly down to the switch to electric lamps instead of working by open flames, waiting to hit a pocket of methane. Even cheapskates like Tecumseh could get behind that. But those three survivors said they heard explosions at a time when there weren't any scheduled. Not just one, but two. As miners, though, they were green and scabs to boot, so their word was suspect. It made things sound deliberate. One of them, a fellow named of Alvin Barnsley, went so far as to say he heard men fighting down on level four before it went to hell. No little scrap either, but a big, sudden uproar. That was part of the rationale Tecumseh had for declaring everybody dead already. How likely is that? I mean, green or not, they had to be smarter than to let some disagreement get that out of control on the job. McNabb tossed his hands up. I guess anything's possible. What makes it suspicious is that not long after, very much on the quiet, Tecumseh deeded over six acres to Alvin Barnsley within a mile or so of the site, right up against the hills outside Carbon Glen. Why? Couldn't say. I don't know if it was for backing the company line or what. What if that doesn't look like a payoff? Well, I don't know what does. Wouldn't money be even quieter? <laughs> You'd think. But maybe under the circumstances, it was the most disposable capital they had to work with. It was a strange situation all around. McNabb took a deep breath, going slower, as if accessing a new data bank. See, once they've been active long enough and gone deep enough, sometimes minds start to develop their own mythologies. Miners start to see things, hear things. Tommy knockers. Maybe you've heard the term. They're spirits, down in the earth, up to no good most of the time. Tapping on the other side of rock walls that shouldn't have anybody over on the other side of them. Well, those last weeks Tecumseh number 24 was operational. It turned odd. They were supposedly pulling some peculiar things up out of there. But it's all just rumor, mostly. These weren't local men letting their families in on a secret. It's scabs, making pillow talk with whores. So consider the sources. 
What do you mean by peculiar things? McNabb folded his knotty hands together, turning pensive as he looked at the far wall. Looked through the wall. When a mind turns strange on you, it's not necessarily the what that makes it strange. It's the fact that there's something down there at all. Nothing strange about an iron kettle or some crude old hammer. You look at them, you know what they are. What makes them strange is that they're embedded in the coal. They shouldn't be there. But there they are. I couldn't detect a hint of lying nor even exaggeration. He believed every word. Is that the kind of things they were finding? McNabb shook his head. No. Stranger. This time, it's the what, too. He slipped a photo from one of his desk's cubbyholes and handed it over. It looked old. Felt old on yellowed, edge-curled stock, thicker than a postcard. It showed what, lacking scale, I might have identified as some eccentric collector's idea of a bowie knife, except it was laid next to a yardstick, and it was a tad longer. That's the only picture I'm aware of, of anything that came up. The weapon was half-blade, half-handle, and I couldn't fathom how someone could comfortably wield it. The handle looked like the tip of a large drill bit, a deep-set flange curving up and around the central shaft, three times in 18 or 20 inches, as if something were meant to grasp it by wrapping inside the groove. The blade was nearly as unusual, with sweeping curves and small barbs, an altogether cruel-looking instrument. I flipped the photo over. Written on the back, in pencil, whose penmanship had an old-fashioned flourish, pulled from Tecumseh number 24, June 16th, 1927. Supposedly, they found some carvings, too. Statuettes, and items nobody even knew what to call. It would have been an ideal time for bringing things up and keeping them to yourselves. The company had its hands full, trying to keep peace with the locals, get that situation resolved. They wouldn't have wanted to know. As for the hired goons, their curiosity likely didn't go any further than how big a knot they could raise on someone's noggin. A scenario came together in my head. Greed meeting opportunity. The pieces were rough, but if you pressed hard enough, they might eventually fit. Is it possible that a bunch of guys started thinking of themselves as treasure hunters rather than miners? McNabb returned the picture to the cubbyhole. Then they turned on each other? Hmm, that would fit the narrative the company preferred. But there's one more factor. The most outlandish. But it's there. The rumor was that two days before the accident, they hit a wall. I don't mean in the usual rock wall sense, a natural formation. I mean artificial, constructed, 
with engravings on it, so that's how they knew it was something more. Huge, supposedly. But that may have been an exaggeration. How is that possible? That can't be possible. McNabb tapped the end of the photo. If you accept this one, you have to consider the possibility of the other. I don't take a position, I just make note of the talk from back then, and this picture came from the local Carnegie Library. They'd had it forever, and never knew what to do with it. So, they gave it to me. My theory? Whatever these men ran into down there, they tried to blow their way through it, or into it. I didn't know near as much about what they were doing as they thought they did. That accounts for a lot of things, assuming the survivor, Alvin Barnsley, was telling the truth. The collapse, the two explosions, the fighting, the uproar. McNabb grinned, more challenge in it than mirth. If you can put it all together into something that makes more sense, you're welcome to try. I do hope you'll share it with me. He was right. It ticked a lot of checkboxes. Except, for me, a significant one. Do you know if Barnsley turned around and sold the land they deeded to him? I was still bothered by that. If he'd only wanted money, it seemed as if Tecumseh could have sold the acreage faster and the payoff would have stayed quiet. It wouldn't have been a matter of public record. He did not, McNabb said. He moved on to it. Apparently he wanted to give farming a try. A scab miner moving into a community that would have hated him. Did he have a death wish? The cave-in didn't kill him so he thought the locals might? A farmer might not have thought it was worth the risk, but a treasure hunter could have. McNabb waved off the specter of him, leaving no doubt of his contempt. The man was desperate enough to be a scab and fool enough to brag on what they'd been pulling out of the mine. It follows that he may have been fool enough to believe he still had a future there. It had been a month since I'd gone to see McNabb and brought his stories home. For me, it had been the end of something. Not closure, but at least an understanding of the chain of tragic events. For Ginny, though, it had been a beginning. I began to see the past month differently. The times when she'd taken longer than usual to come home from teaching a class. The increased hours she'd spent on her computer. Another man might have looked at such symptoms and suspected an affair, but Ginny wasn't the type to sneak. She was sufficiently blunt that she would have told me I was fucking up badly enough to get her thinking in this direction. Regardless, an affair was the last place she would have channeled her grief. Her worry over Katie. I should have believed her, Jenny told me at the kitchen table, with her coffee and her ass-kicking clothes. From the very start, I should have believed her. She laid a hand over her belly as if even now she could feel a kick within. A tapping on the other side of her uterine wall. They spent nine months together in the dark. 
here. If Katie says she'd know if True really was gone, then I should have had more faith that she knows what she's talking about. She was stressing herself, not me. The processes she was describing could never have included me. The three of them had been bound together in flesh and blood and water. And if you wanted to go that far, spirit. Even as her husband and their father, I was still on the outside. And I'd had to learn the hard way that sometimes the better part of fulfilling those roles meant knowing when to shut up and listen. Jenny pushed her phone across the table to me. Do you recognize him? The photo in the display showed as much a mugshot with an indistinct background that might have been a living room. Its subject looked several years older than we were. Fifty-ish, or maybe it was just bad living. A man with thinning hair and meaty cheeks and a bowed, prissy mouth. I found something unsavory about him. He had a look I'd seen accompanying too many case files about men who'd spent years filling crawl spaces with bodies. He hadn't wanted his picture taken. I could tell that much. No, I said. I don't. You should. He was in the street outside our house for most of that week in April. We're practically neighbors. He's less than two miles from here. Is his name Barnsley? Jenny nodded. Otto. He's the grandson, third generation on the same property. Who even does that anymore? Jenny drained her coffee, then came around the table and leaned on me, with her arms strong and tender around my neck. You need to eat something, Trevor, she said, her chin resting on the crown of my head. I got this far on my own and kept you out of it. I'm not doing the rest by myself. You've been listening to part one of On These Blackened Shores of Time by Brian Hodge. For part two and the conclusion of tonight's story, be sure to check in next week. On These Blackened Shores was written by and brought to you courtesy of Brian Hodge. Brian, called a writer of spectacularly unflinching gifts by no less than Peter Straub, is the award-winning author of 10 novels of horror and crime noir. He's also written over 100 short stories, novelettes, and novellas, and four full-length collections. His most recent collection, 2011's Picking the Bones, became the first of his books to be honored with a publisher's weekly starred review. His first collection, The Convulsion Factory, was ranked by critic Stanley Wyatter among the 113 best books of modern horror. He lives in Colorado, where more of everything is in the works. He also dabbles in music, sound design, and photography. Loves everything about organic gardening, except the thieving squirrels, and as a fellow Colorado resident, the squirrels here truly are assholes. He also trains in Krav Maga and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which are of no use at all against the squirrels, because they're quite swift. 
Connect through his website, brianhodge.net, or on Facebook under his handle, Brian Hodge Writer, all one word. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to me. If you'd like to hear more lengthy tales, be sure to take a look at my audiobooks, available now on audible.com. If you'd like to hear a premium, ad-free edition of tonight's and all our other episodes, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive, dating back to 2012, including past episodes of this program, all of our other shows, and hundreds of standalone releases, all of them ad-free and available to download or stream. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You'll find me personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Until next week, listener, when we meet up once again atop the Horror Hill for yet another Dance with Darkness, I bet you good night. Sleep tight, listener, and whatever you do, if you hear scratching at your door, don't open it. The darkness may have found you, but it's up to you to let it in. You've been listening to Horror Hill, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, as well as a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Jason Hill unless otherwise noted. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Sound design, original music, and final mixing and mastering provided by Felipe Ojeda under the guidance of executive producer and director Craig Groshek. The program's logo was created by Craig Groshek, and this week's artwork provided by Omega Black, unless otherwise noted. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at horrorhill at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of the show. If you enjoyed what you've heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and Horror Hill on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every week. 
And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or request. If you can never get enough spooky stories and can't wait until next week for more and haven't already, be sure to check out Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on YouTube for hundreds of free audio horror stories, including more performances from yours truly, and consider supporting us by becoming a patron at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next week with more frightening fiction to haunt your dreams. Until next time, I'm Jason Hill, and you've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast. Good evening, and sweet dreams. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian.